This is Love, Recovery, and Rock and Roll, stories about substance abuse and recovery. I'm Chris. And I'm Amy. And we have a website if you haven't visited it. It is loverecoveryrr.com. There you will find all of our episodes, blog posts, and other useful information for those in recovery and the loved ones and friends and family of those in recovery. Today, our guest, and I'm very excited to have this guest on here, Lee Chu is with us today. She's here to talk about mindfulness and the uh, basically the benefits of it, especially in recovery, but just in overall life. And being uh, big into mindfulness myself, I've been very excited to have somebody come on and do this. So. Thank you very much, Lee. Why don't you give us a little background about yourself? All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am currently in private practice. I am a clinical mental health counselor and have been in practice for about seven and a half years now. Previously, I was a therapist there at Turning Point for five years. I was in residential treatment. And about a year and a half ago, I went into private practice and have been holding my private practice since then. And then, um, in addition to those, I also have been offered a, a clinical directorship for Pinnacle, and I am directing the intensive outpatient program there. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. You have a very vast experience. I know you have an MS, a CMHC, and an NCC. Can you tell me what all those acronyms mean? (laughs) (laughs) They're confusing. Um, Masters of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, and the NCC is Nationally Certified Counselor. So it's a national credential. That's wonderful. And you specialize in mindfulness-based psychotherapy, And you yourself have been a longtime practitioner of mindfulness. Tell us, how did you get into mindfulness? Well, I'm going to reveal my age here, but um, I first began practicing when I was 16 years old, which was a very long time ago. Um, And I got initiated into transcendental meditation. Um, I was curious at the time. Uh, I was very much into being a hippie and uh, um, was impressed with these alternative um, ideas. So I began practicing meditation at that time. And since then, I have practiced it personally, both formally and informally. That's great. And how did you decide to incorporate this into your clinical practice? As one becomes a clinician, you realize that the way you do therapy is really the foundation is who you are. And so when mindfulness has been a very um, important part for my balance and well-being, um, of course, it was folded into how I do therapy. Although I was very encouraged when I found out that there are several um, psychologists, psychiatrists, and psychotherapists that 
are mindfulness-based therapists and have written extensive books about it and done um, a lot of research and established it mindfulness-based psychotherapy as a research-based practice. And that really gave me the permission to feel very comfortable and confident in moving forward with that. Now, you mentioned some books. What are your book recommendations for individuals that want to research more? Well, just generally speaking, and and my main teacher that I study with and I've done several seminars with is Ron Siegel. He um, has written the book, The Mindfulness Solution, and he's actually written many books on this idea of incorporating mindfulness into psychotherapy, and then also how an individual can fold mindfulness into their recovery, and also dealing with disorders like anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive behavior, and also trauma responses. Mindfulness psychotherapy has become a very effective tool in working with trauma as well. I think there's often some misconceptions about mindfulness and meditation. And I, you know, I'm you know, looking at you, Chris, because you are the unlikely candidate for somebody that would enjoy mindfulness and meditation, yet you yourself will say that that's been a huge part of your recovery. Yeah, it's been a, a big piece for me, and I would say I, I was an unlikely candidate. Um, when I first entered residential, um, Turning Point once a week was doing the mindfulness practice mindfulness meditation I believe is what they called it but at any rate I I just remember the Maya came in and I had been there for about a week at that point and I really didn't understand meditation I thought that I had tried it but you know what I thought it was is not what it was after she left that first day there was a lot going on in me but I I knew immediately that there was something different, that that something was there. There there was something to this. There wasn't a lot, you know, I didn't have uh, access to the internet at the time, but um, I did realize that maybe by just taking some time each day and sitting with it, it kind of helped, even though I still really didn't know what it was all about. And after the second session, I knew I was on to something at that point, that, that this was really resonating for me internally. You know, there was a lot going on inside of me and a lot of it hard to deal with and hard to observe. But each time that after that hour and 15 minutes was up, I just felt different. And, you know, at the time I wasn't sure that it was better it turned out to be, but it was just so powerful to me. And so I just really attached myself to that. I spoke with Maya after the second session. She kind of gave me some general ideas. I I kind of put Amy to work on the outside and kind of getting me some more information on it so that I could begin a practice of my own. And I just, I even to this day, it's... It's incredible that the more I learn about practicing mindfulness and the more I practice it, the less I know about it. It's, it's just incredible. And the longer I practice, it seems like the more distance 
to the end goal, which I'm probably really have come to realize there is no end goal. You know, there it's there is no end and stop worrying about it. You know, just roll with your practice. One thing that that I really noticed is most of my housemates at the time just this didn't click with them. They didn't like it. It raised anxiety in them and and they dreaded the mindfulness on Friday mornings. And I wanted to kind of one of the questions I had for you is just your take on, you know, why is that, that this clicked with me so quick, but others struggle with it and just have a hard time sitting with their emotions? Yes. Well, it sounds like you were at a time in your life where you're ready, ready to connect with yourself rather than avoid. That's something that um, mindfulness challenges us to do is to connect with ourselves in the present moment with kindness and acceptance. And if, and now I'm thinking particularly in regards to substance dependence, when I have spent my life or my behaviors avoiding uncomfortable, um, unfamiliar, or downright painful emotions um, and substance happens to be an excellent uh, ally in avoiding painful emotions, that then when I go into recovery and I am challenged to sit with myself and connect with my emotions, I am actually feeling that which I've been avoiding to feel for a very long time. And so... I always say mindfulness isn't for the faint of heart because at certain times when an emotion is uncomfortable or unfamiliar or painful, it is. it takes a lot of courage to connect with that and to trust myself enough that I have the capacity to feel. Yeah, and I, I did experience, you know, there was painful memories, there were you know, things I didn't even realize were there. You know, it's called practice for a reason because it does take practice and nonstop. You know, that makes some sense for sure. I do recall being a little bit of a zealot about it initially and, and almost trying to cram it to people and say, why doesn't this, this has to work. You have to do this. You have to meditate. You have to practice mindfulness. And realizing after about three or four months of that, that, you know, this is, it's working for me and, and I'm okay with that. And if it's not working for you, I'm sorry. It, it's not necessarily because you're doing anything wrong. Just like a convert to anything. They get a little bit zealous, zealous about it to, to start. I share your passion um, I, in teaching it almost every day during the week. That question is asked often why some are drawn to mindfulness and others are repellent. And it just takes me back to understanding human nature. And for us as human beings, we are hardwired to avoid what is uncomfortable, unfamiliar, or downright painful. And we attach to what is pleasant. And just having that automatic response to my experience, I can either attach to a positive feeling or I can repel something that's painful. But mindfulness is inviting me to consider anchoring my awareness in the present moment 
with acceptance and not pushing back um, or resisting, but just being able to get to what is, who I am. This is probably the biggest challenge for most of us in practicing mindfulness. Well, I should say my steps. Mindfulness um, kind of are comprised of three steps. Awareness, focused in the present moment with acceptance and kindness. And step number three is a humdinger, because (laughs) (laughs) to accept myself as I am right now, especially when an individual is entering recovery, they are considering, well, I'll accept myself when I'm I'm sober, or I'll be better um, in the future. And mindfulness is inviting you to accept yourself as you are right now. I call it warts and all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. (laughs) The good and the bad, the positive, the negatives, the strengths, and the weaknesses. Accepting that. And then once I come to a state of acceptance, I can evaluate and become aware of, once I land in the present moment in myself, I can notice what I'm thinking, notice what I'm feeling, and notice what I'm doing. And in that awareness, I can determine, are these things serving me or are they not? And what I found is mindfulness is a very effective tool to interrupt automatic behavior patterns. And automatic behavior patterns are something that our brains are hardwired to do as the human animal. It ensures our uh, survival. And thank goodness, we do have this hardwired um, tendency to create automatic behavior patterns so that we can kind of platform and develop. And so that every moment, every morning when we wake up, we're not reinventing the wheel again and again. Our mind is developing these automatic behavior patterns Everything from riding a bicycle to doing our, the skills that is required with our jobs to substance dependence. And when we have used substance and become physically dependent on a substance, meaning that if my body begins to have withdrawals when I don't have my sub- substance on board, then my mind interprets that, that we, we are going to die if we don't have our substance. And this is why our midbrain lights up when uh, in talking about the neuroanatomy of addiction, and that my substance goes to the top of the list over all the things that I do to survive, that becomes the most important priority, and I will do my substance at the expense of surviving. So I have acquired this automatic behavior pattern comprised of thoughts, emotions, and behaviors using substances that I'm doing automatically. And what automatic infers is that it's operating underneath my consciousness. So I'm unaware of this behavior pattern that I'm doing that is killing me. (laughs) Once I step back and notice what I'm doing, then I can assess, once I become aware of it, then I can choose a response that's in alignment with what is meaningful and valuable to me. And literally, when I practice mindfulness anchoring in the present moment with acceptance, that where my 
brain lights up is changed. So my midbrain is no longer lighting up. When I'm anchored in the present moment, my prefrontal cortex and cortex lights up, particularly the midline that joins the right and left hemisphere of the cortex and prefrontal cortex. And I think you've had Dennis here before talking about the neuroanatomy. (laughs) But the thing that I find so valuable and useful is once I change to that part of my brain, I have choice. Where when I'm in my midbrain, it is automatic and it has stops being a choice. So practicing mindfulness allows me to shift out of my midbrain into my prefrontal cortex and choose a response that is in alignment with my values. That's what why I feel so passionate about mindfulness. Yeah. So I think there's often the misconception that mindfulness is meditation. Mm-hmm. And so, and then, of course, I think when we think of the vis- our visual response when someone says meditation, right, is we picture somebody cross-legged, um, you know, oming, and that very kind of you know, almost a new agey feel, I think. And, and so people sometimes go, oh, that's, that's intense. I'm not sure if that's for me. Let's, let's talk about the difference between the two. What is mindfulness versus meditation and how do they complement each other? Well, they are very similar. So when you are practicing mindfulness, I think that meditation is the practice the engagement with practicing being mindful. But in mindfulness, there's two components to it. One is the ability to focus your attention. And I will talk you all through a mindfulness exercise in a little while to demonstrate this. But oftentimes with different meditations, they will start with focusing on the physical sensations of breathing. And when you do that, you follow a sensation, focusing your attention on that sensation, you become present-oriented with your attention. The second part is what is truly mindfulness. Once I land in the present moment with acceptance, then I can step back and witness the content of my mind. In other words, as I had said before, noticing what I'm thinking, noticing what I'm feeling, noticing the sensations in my body, and noticing what I'm doing. When I become aware of that I'm and watch that movie go by, so to speak, I step out of the content of my mind and I witness what the content is. That is mindfulness, which is another concept, which is mindfulness is the ability to anchor in myself with a capital S and be able to witness the content of my mind and not become my thoughts or my beliefs or my emotions. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to me. When I sit down in meditation, I am working on my mindfulness practice. I mean, that's why I meditate. The The time in meditation spent is what creates that, your ability to automatically, you know, respond when you're just in your day-to-day life. And by practicing the meditation daily, 
I mean, it's to strengthen my mindfulness throughout the day, every day. I use an app called Calm. I'm sure you're familiar with Calm. That's, you know, because there's a lot of, of good messages and they t- take tackle different subjects. They also have specific ones you can go to. And, and really good sleep stories with they, songs. <laughs> Perfect. I sleep in pause. Um, yeah. And so, you know, for me to do that, to, to practice daily, and then it, it kind of gives me general ideas. And I'll share a story. When I was in early recovery, while I was still in treatment, um, one of my mates, um, he used to, he brought up the idea that he would say trigger out loud anytime he was triggered. And we latched onto that, uh, me, my family. I mean, anytime, sometimes even in joking fashion, if somebody, you know, if there was a beer commercial on TV or, you know, someone mentions, um, you know, narcotics or whatever. And, you know, we'd say trigger. And even when I was truly triggered, I would just spit it out loud, trigger. And if anyone was around me, especially Amy, we would just have a discussion. What What is it? Where did it come from? Same with cravings. If it's craving, I always realized I missed a trigger that led to the craving. And it dawned on me about six months ago that by saying trigger was an actual response that I had created in myself without realizing it to return to the present moment and observe what is going on in me. Those are the things that through practice for me have allowed me to just be able to do it anytime, anywhere. A light turns red on me when I'm headed somewhere. That is no longer an irritant to me. That is an opportunity. Red lights are great for me now because it's an automatic response that just and that was given to me as a suggestion you know on that app that let it just anything in you know the sound of a plane flying overhead uh, the wind blowing anything that you can latch on to that and and that's where the meditation piece by getting into the meditation and sitting with myself in, in true not really silence, but just in true observation of what's going on within to let that just become daily habit. And, you know, I'm not to brag because I'm not that type, right, Amy? <laughs> not at all. But, you know, I mean, I'm, I work with clients at, at Turning Point now and they are constantly asking me, how do you, how do you stay so calm all the time? And you're always so positive and so happy and and my response is mindfulness. You know, I just try to live in the moment all I can. And it doesn't work that way all the time. I do consistently have to bring myself back, but I do it. And a lot of times automatically without the effort, I just come back and it's, it's incredible. So there, sorry to round. Nice practice. And literally when you are practicing that informally, that you are, and formally, of course, but that you're rewiring your brain to be present. So it does become an automatic response to become anchored in the present moment with acceptance, um, not having a fight with what is like the red light and the aggravation that might come. Instead, you are accepting of it. Oh, red light. Mm-hmm. And being able to do something that's valuable to you with that moment. Yeah. So lovely practice. Yeah. 
I love practical application. That's where mindfulness is really useful for me as far as cultivating um, a connection with yourself in the present moment with acceptance because I raise my awareness of what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, and what I'm doing, but also what is meaningful to me, what is important to me. And when I am invested in dissociating from my emotions and my experience, then I also lose touch with what's valuable to me. And I can find myself, I know I've worked with many people that have come to, uh, I guess, a really an existential crisis, uh, a time in their life where they just land and they feel like, how on earth did I get here and have lost meaning and purpose for living? And it is because we have dissociated from ourselves, either with a substance or we also are very capable of dissociating from our emotions on our own without that uh, use of substances as well. Uh, and when that is our practice, we lose touch with what is meaningful. And that's another reason why I feel passionate about mindfulness, is in the practice of it, it is connecting with myself and noticing um, if I do have painful emotions or wounds that have occurred um, historically, that I am more willing to, I call it, leaning into it and accepting my experiences in the past and holding them with kindness and, and safety. And in that way, we can become more emotionally resilient, um, when I accept myself and my experience. And, and I get more emotional clarity, too, instead of that overwhelming confusion. So, Amy, I want to ask you, um, just your mindfulness practice, because you've always been a relatively calm person. Um, I mean, not to say you don't get uptight sometimes. But. <laughs> I... I think that there's a lot of value to being calm and peaceful. You know, I look at things like, you know, when people yell and raise their voices, I don't see the valuable output of that. For me, yelling is, get out of the street, there's a car coming, right? I feel like that level of volume and tone is appropriate for the issue that's about to occur. I find when you can speak in calm voices on tough issues and focus on solutions, you just get better outcomes. And I'm that way at work. And I, and I tell people I work with, you know, that's, that's what I value. And I've, you know, I've even had leaders say, hey, Amy's always calm under pressure. Well, even when I don't always feel calm on the inside, I like to at least exude calmness. I'm not sure if I've ever really been as formalized in practicing a meditation mindfulness I have struggled with it in some respects. You know, I've attended yoga classes and other types of classes where they, you know, there's that meditation aspect. And for me, it's hard to sit with my thoughts because when I'm in that state, it's the lists that go through my head. Okay, I'm calm. 
I'm trying to reflect and be present. And then it's the, okay, you got to clean this and you got to go do this work project. And then that thought triggers another cascade of lists of work projects and home projects and cleaning. And then on Tuesday, the baby has to go here at this time. And, and so that's a struggle for me. And I think one of the best things I've learned from you, Chris, is saying, not punishing yourself for those thoughts, but just accepting them as they come and letting them just flow through you to the point that you're not mad at yourself because you're going through all the lists. Because that's pretty much what my mind is all the time is all the things I have to do. That's just how I roll. When that happens to me with that, because it, it does occur. And it's like you said, it's just being aware of them. And each individual thought, I, I give it its name and and its space and just allow it. And if there are a bunch of them coming, I literally internally just say, I see you all and you'll get your time. So let's just organize ourselves. Everyone get in a circle and let's just go around the room and we can just have that discussion. And that might sound a little crazy, but that's that's how I deal with that doesn't sound crazy at all to me. In fact, what's something that you, it sounds like, have just intuitively found is thought labeling, um, being able to notice what kind of thought is coming up. And another automatic behavior pattern that you were kind of touching on, Amy, was about judging ourselves. That's another automatic behavior pattern, self-judgment or criticism. And I love your awareness on that because you noticed, oh, I'm now going to criticize myself because I'm my thoughts are rolling with lists of what I'm going to, my to-do list. Mm-hmm. And, and something that I enjoy about the way Ron Siegel teaches mindfulness is that it is accepting the mind as it is rolling. We're not using mindfulness to control our thoughts or emotions, but rather just to notice it. With acceptance, I love. This is kind of a, a hoot. He says, um, "If the if the mind is active and frisky, let it be frisky. If it's drowsy and luggy, let it be drowsy and luggy. And just being in that state of acceptance and noticing how my mind is rolling. When I notice, I am not." Uh, blended with my thoughts. I'm stepping back and becoming an observer of my thoughts. So it's you're practicing mindfulness anyhow, even though what your mind is doing is listing, right? Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's what we picture is with mindfulness and meditation is that tabula rasa, that blank slate, I'm just present. But that's not always the case. And I imagine people have these floating thoughts that come through and and honestly, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. That it works well for me, except at night where you might be debriefing in your mind everything and you can't go to sleep. But that's what I like when we turn on the calm app meditation is usually that's enough for me to just fall asleep too. And I appreciate that. Yeah, you usually snoozing before it's over. Because <laughs> you can hear me snoring. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just return with a quality of friendliness. Exactly. (laughs) The friendliness and kindness or um, 
self-compassion. That's a, a really important part of the mindfulness process. I don't think so much, well, in the way that I teach and my understanding of mindfulness, I think that it's human nature that our minds are rolling constantly. Mm-hmm. Even when we're sleeping, that's why we dream. Our minds are constantly um, at work uh, processing prioritizing, doing what minds do, you know. And when I can just step back from it and notice what I'm doing and then notice if the thoughts, emotions, and behaviors are serving me or not, um, you can refine your to-do list, right? <laughs> and, and when you hold it with your values, um, and then you can decide, okay, th- that helps you make the priority as far as what you do first. So you're mindfully doing your to-do list. <laughs> I like that. I like that way of framing it. So for somebody that wants to get started into mindfulness and you know meditation and, and really as a personal journey embark upon it, what advice do you have to them? You've listed your three steps, but what more can they do to create a mindful practice? And while you're answering that, throw in the the role of shame, which I think a lot of people in early recovery struggle with. Mm -hmm. So if you you could. Um, The most approachable um, um, beginning of mindfulness is the more informal practice of just noticing um, what I, in in day-to-day life, doing day-to-day tasks, just noticing, becoming in touch with, I call it anchoring in your body in the present moment, noticing what it feels like to be in your body in that moment. And then once I land, I can perhaps begin to notice the thought and the emotion, although that is a little bit more advanced practice. Initially, the practice is just anchoring in my body in the present moment. And what I offer is usually following the breath, just noticing what it feels like to breathe in my nostrils or my belly, and just focus on that. Just what does it feel like to be in in my body? I often also tell my students to do it in a practical way Um, when you're brushing your teeth, when you're washing the dishes, when you're vacuuming, anchoring your body in the present moment in that task and notice what it feels like to be there doing that, being present for what we're doing. That's really essentially mindfulness in its simplest form, Um, just being present, doing whatever we're doing. To talk about shame, Chris, that takes us back to the judge or the inner critic, which is also an automatic behavior pattern. Um, I know I can do it automatically. It has been a lifetime journey um, working with my inner critic. And when you, I think it's the human experience that we all have a human um, um, uh, inner critic or a judge. And unfortunately, the emotion, the emotional consequence is shame. And the difference, there is a big difference between shame and guilt in that guilt is, oh, I regret I did that. And if I had it to do over, I'd do it differently. But shame is the internalizing of that guilt. And it is, I am bad 
because I did an action, I am a bad human being. It is a, a soulful evaluation um, that is debilitating. And it also extends out into our culture, into our community, um, because m- many cultures control their um, members by shaming them. If you aren't acting in accordance with the social rules, then you are looked down upon. You're shamed in some way. And then in growing up in that kind of social treatment, then we internalize that mechanism and we shame ourselves. Another reason why I feel so passionate about mindfulness is that it is an opportunity to get in touch with, instead of letting shame have an automatic role, and as I call it, letting shame steer the ship instead of me, because if it's operating unconsciously, when I practice mindfulness, I can start noticing, oh, just like you label thoughts, I, you, any of us can cultivate the tool to label and notice, oh, I'm judging, judgment. I'm shaming myself and noticing when I think this way, I feel shame. And then when I feel shame, how does that affect me in my life? And I'll speak for myself, it, it, it's, it can be debilitating and affect all of our relationships and what we feel we deserve in life, um, whether it's receiving love from another or my relationship with work and money, my relationship with the environment, all of my relations are affected when I hold myself in shame and I am fractured internally. I then, if I can't love myself, then I do not have the capacity to love another or to receive love. And that is perhaps one of the most damaging results from shame, because that too is the human condition, that all of us need connection and love. Perfect. Thank you. That's that's great. Now, we were going to do an actual mindfulness exercise, correct? Yes, if you would like to do that. That would be great. So um, I'll just let you, um, you know, do the introduction of it and Mm -hmm. get started. I'm just going to remove my uh, glasses and get ready for this one. (laughs) Okay, great. Get comfortable. This mindfulness exercise or meditation I'm going to talk you through is from Eric Garland. He's a professor at the University of Utah and has developed a recovery program called Mindfulness-Oriented Recovery Enhancement. Um, This particular exercise has been designed for everyone that is in recovery uh, to activate different parts of our brain and get us back into connection with ourselves, and being able to make choices that are in alignment with our values. All right, so allow yourself to settle into your body. If you're comfortable closing your eyes, go ahead and do so. But if not, you can leave them open as well and just have a soft gaze in front of you. 
Allow your back to be straight, but not strained. Sit in an open and regal fashion, like a king or queen might sit in their throne. Take a deep breath in and let it go. Focus your attention on where your body makes contact with the chair. Scanning your body at all the points of contact and just noticing what the sensations of contact might be. Noticing if there's places that are hard or soft or perhaps a sense of weight or lightness. That's right. Now, focus your attention on your nostrils and notice the sensations here in your nostrils as you effortlessly breathe. Stepping back and becoming a neutral observer to the sensations in your nostrils as you breathe. That's right. Noticing if there's a sense of temperature, cool or warm, or perhaps flexing or tingling. That's right. As we do this, you may notice your mind wandering to outside sounds or other thoughts And that's okay, because that's what minds do. They wander. If you find this happening at any time, allow your attention to focus on that and fully notice whatever that may be. And then, gently, return your focus back to what you are doing. In this case, noticing the sensations in your nostrils as you breathe. That's right. Now, focus your attention on your belly, allowing your belly to hang loose and free. Let it go. And notice the sensations here in your belly as you breathe. That's right, rising and falling, rising and falling, noticing the sensations in your belly as you breathe. That's right. Now, in your mind's eye, step back 
and become a neutral observer to a blue sky, knowing that there's no right or wrong to it, stepping back and becoming a neutral observer to a blue sky. As clouds form, drift by, and then disappear. That's right. Stepping back and becoming a neutral observer to a blue sky. As clouds form. Drift by. And then disappear. That's right. Stepping back and becoming a neutral observer to a blue sky. As clouds form, call upon a thought, a concern, a craving, and place it on the cloud. Step back from it and watch it Take shape. Drift by. And then disappear. That's right. Stepping back and becoming a neutral observer to a blue sky. As clouds form, call upon a thought, a fear, and place it on the cloud. Step back from it and watch it take shape. Drift by. And then disappear. That's right. Now, focus your attention on either your breathing or the blue sky. Either one, it's your choice. That's right.
and finally, focus your attention on what you enjoyed in this experience. And when you know what you enjoyed in this experience, and you feel just a little more encouraged, when you know this, and you're ready, open your eyes. Thank you. You're most welcome. Did you get a blue sky? Got a blue sky with an airplane flying over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, I was able to get a real good just visual on that, especially when you said to take the thought and put it on the cloud and, and watch it. Step back from it and mm -hmm. watch it take shape. Yeah. It's just encouraging mindfulness again and being able to unblend myself and not become my thought, but rather I am having a thought instead of I am the thought. And I'm glad that you could. What thought did you put on the cloud? Well, I, I owe an answer to a, a superior at work and um, trying to work out a babysitter schedule. And so that has been kind of popping. It's been making its rounds in my head. So I just put that on the cloud and um, observed it for a minute. But what ha actually happened is it just floated off with the cloud. So I didn't have <laughs> to observe it for long. So you were able to let it go. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sometimes people, when they hit that phase of letting the cloud go, that depending on what they put on the cloud, sometimes it's more difficult to let go of and, and let it disappear. Mm-hmm. What about you, Aim? I don't want to out myself, but I will. I, I was trying to be mindful, but people can't see this because they're listening, but I'm also managing all of the audio equipment. So I would have these focused moments, and then I would just side glance over to the equipment to make sure everything was recording okay. That's fair enough. <laughs> I just didn't want things to fall apart. I mean, we've deleted full episodes before, so... <laughs> Okay. Well, Lee, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really appreciate it. If you've got some closing remarks or any kind of wrap-up you'd like, by all means, the time is yours. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I feel very strongly about bringing mindfulness as a tool to interrupt automatic behavior patterns, particularly those behavior patterns that no longer serve us. And bringing this to the recovery community as a very practical tool that not only helps us uh, maintain our sobriety, but also to be able to love ourselves and accept ourselves and be in a state of compassion with ourselves and in turn 
than being able to be compassionate towards others and receive compassion and love from others. Uh, I know sometimes some of us in the recovery community, that can be some the most difficult um, time is to ask for help when we need it. And mindfulness is a, a really kind tool in cultivating my ability to receive and ask for what I need and then allow my needs to be met. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. Um, Thank you so much. And if people want to come and, and get specialized therapy from you, they can go to fireflyaddiction.com. We will also be posting your list of recommended books that include The Refuge Recovery by Noah Levine, The Mindful Solution, Everyday Practices for Everyday Problems by Ronald D. Siegel, and Mindfulness-Oriented Recovery Enhancement for Addiction, Stress, and Pain by Eric Garland. So I'll post links to those as well as other tips. But thank you so much for joining us. It's just been a pleasure having you here. So now it's time for our episode song. Yeah, and, I, and this is going to be a surprise to me. I don't know what she's dug up here. I'm a little you nervous. Don't. Like, uh, it's a good one, and there's a reason I picked this one. It's less on the rock, probably more on the roll, if that makes sense. It is by Marconi Union, and it's called Weightless. It's more electronica, but let me explain why I picked it. The first Weightless track from Marconi Union's album called Weightless, uh, they were asked to write a piece of relaxing music in consultation with Liz Cooper, the UK's leading sound therapist and founder of the British Academy of Sound Therapy. The plan was that the track would then be scientifically tested for its effectiveness. The prospect of being involved in this unusual project proved to be highly alluring and the union quickly agreed to take part. When Weightless was tested at the Mindlamb Institute, scientists reported that their research indicated that the music slowed the heart rate, reduced blood pressure, and decreased levels of cortisol, a steroid hormone that is released in response to stress. So the whole concept of this song and album is about stress reduction. It's great for reducing anxiety. It is something that I listen to on a regular frequency. When things get stressed at work, I've got a digging deep to an Excel spreadsheet and I've got a lot going on, but I'm not on a phone call or uh, I'll turn this track on. There's actually a YouTube where they've like linked the song together and it's 10 hours of this song. And you can't tell uh, when it starts and restarts because the song is so just fluid. So again, it's different from rock and roll, but scientifically proven to reduce anxiety yeah you're welcome <laughs> okay in the future when you're picking songs i, I don't want you just willy-nilly in it i need you to research them a little bit <laughs> <laughs> so there you go i'll let you do the artist and title one more time because i've never heard of it before. it's called weightless by marconi union enjoy so much for cashmere by led zeppelin <laughs>